following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. This morning we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 5 and uh, uh, beginning in verse uh, verse 18 and uh, the, the topic or theme of our message this morning is being filled by the Spirit. I think most of us realize and acknowledge that uh, apart from the work of Christ and the the faith in that work that brings about our cleansing and our righteousness, probably the next most significant thing in the Christian life is the operation in the, of the Holy Spirit in our life. That uh, God doesn't just reach down, deal with our sin, and then launch us out to live life on our own. That He's equipped us, he, His presence is with us, His work in us is, is done through the Holy Spirit. And uh, Paul emphasizes that in this section. And uh, I want to really spend some time on this because it, it's structurally the way the, the, the grammar, the sentence lays out. This really governs a good section of, uh, of the next portion of Scripture. And it's really important to see it in that context. So before we read, let's, uh, let's pray together that God would lead us this morning. Lord, we just thank you so much, first of all, for the work that Christ has done on the cross on our behalf, uh, taking upon himself our sin, uh, becoming and taking upon the punishment of, of death and condemnation so that we could be free from those things and be restored to a right relationship with you. And Father, we thank you that beyond that, you have poured out in our lives your Holy Spirit. Uh, as Jesus promised repeatedly uh, after he left, you would send your spirit and the spirit would be with us, would guide us, would teach us, would comfort us. Lord, we thank you so much for the ministry and operation of the Holy Spirit continually in our lives. Uh, we ask that this morning you would help us understand our relationship and our co-working with the spirit more clearly. And we would see uh, the results it should be producing in our life. Lord, that we would have those as a goal for our life day by day. So teach us, we pray, by your Spirit, by your leading this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me read uh, chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. Uh, and actually, I'm going I'm to start reading in verse 15, and you'll see why uh, as I explain this. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, and the section actually continues on all the way down uh, chapter 6, verse 9. And uh, let me give you, I don't do this often, this is kind of more teaching maybe than preaching, but if you could go to the next slide, uh, let me lay out grammatically the structure or the context of this passage. And it's important to see this because Paul's injunction to live wisely uh, really governs everything that happens between uh, verse 18 of chapter 5 down through chapter, uh, verse 9 of chapter 6. Uh, so if you could go to the next point, it says, Be careful how you live. Then the next section has three parallel thoughts. He says, Live not as unwise, but as wise. Kind of a parallel opposite there. And he says, Not as senseless, but as those who know God's will. And then thirdly, he says, Not as those who are drunk with wine, but those filled by the Spirit. Those things kind of work in parallel. Then under that, the section that comes immediately under that, under the last line, do not be drunk but be filled with the Spirit, are five participles, five key words um, in the next three verses, and they are speaking songs, uh, speaking songs, singing, 
making music in your hearts, which I lumped all together as singing, okay, because they all kind of have to do with the same thing. Third, the fourth word is actually giving thanks, and the fifth word is actually submitting, okay, which is you know everybody's favorite. You know, people just come to this passage and meditate hours on this whole submission thing, because it's just a hugely popular subject these days. Go to the Christian bookshelf, just shelves on how to be more submissive, right? Uh, but actually, that is, that is, as we will see, one of the five marks of a life filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, So all that comes under the category or the, the key sentence to be, to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And then under that, Paul breaks it down even further in the remaining verses where he talks about submitting relationships of, of wives to husbands, children to parents, and slaves to masters. All that in the Greek actually comes out to basically two sentences. Okay, So it's very connected. And uh, to pull any part of that out without seeing the whole context will, will cause problems in our understanding. Okay, So it's very important to see it in that context. Uh, what we're going to talk about today is being filled with the Holy Spirit. And this concept of being filled with the Spirit drives everything all the way to verse 9 to chapter 6 as evidences or marks of the operation of the Holy Spirit in our life. <clears throat> okay, so enough for the, uh, the quick lesson in grammar. Moving on. Next slide. Uh, he talks about living under the influence. So the last of those three couplets, he says, do not be drunk with wine, but be, or be filled with the Spirit. Uh, we talk about if you drink too much, we say you are under the influence, you know, driving under the influence. Uh, scholars have debated if you know, people in Ephesus have some kind of drinking problem, uh, probably not. It probably wasn't that Paul necessarily was picking on a specific problem these guys had. Although, I guess if you've been to Greece, I guess Greeks drink a lot. I don't know. I've never been there. But I guess that's common. I don't know, though, that Paul is, is targeting that as much as he's, he's setting up parallels. He says, don't be unwise like the world is generally unwise, but be wise. Don't be senseless like the world is generally senseless and clueless about God's purpose and will in the world. Instead, know what God's will is. Know what God's purpose is. And then he comes to the third one as a, as a contrast. Generally speaking, not everybody, but generally speaking, the world is under the influence of alcohol, which he said leads to dissipation. Okay, I love that word. When's the last time you felt dissipated? <laughs> I don't know what this word means. Um, literally, it has the idea of being reckless. And it's, it's very fitting of somebody who's under the influence of alcohol, right? In fact, one who's under the influence of alcohol oftentimes ends up driving very carelessly or recklessly, right? Endangering. Oftentimes, one who is very intoxicated, in general, lives recklessly. They do things that otherwise, they, in, in a sober moment, would never think of doing, right? Running around naked with a lampshade on your head. Are things sober people don't do, okay? Only people who are under the influence of alcohol, and it causes their life to be rendered reckless, senseless. You do things that have no meaning or purpose, and in fact, in the end, would be very self-destructive, right? And Paul is putting this up as a contrast or as an opposite of what it means to be filled by the Spirit. He says, don't be like that. Uh, he's not saying, by the way, he's not saying here... Uh, you know, don't drink, but he's definitely saying don't get drunk. Don't, don't let inf the influence of alcohol uh, possess you. But instead, you should be influenced or possessed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, you should live under uh, the, the operation and the influence of the Holy Spirit in your life, which doesn't lead towards recklessness or carelessness, but should lead to a different kind of life. And in uh, these next five words, he, he explains what those are. Singing, thankfulness, okay, and even submission are the produce, the product, the result of a life that's influenced by the Holy Spirit. Um, and what does he mean by the filling of the Spirit? The very common phrase, it's one we use a lot. Uh, oftentimes, maybe you have prayed or we have prayed that people would be filled with the Spirit. Uh, Jesus talks about sending the Spirit in the Gospels and promises that when He le left, He would send the Holy Spirit who would come and live in you. Uh, the focus of the New Testament is that after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit doesn't just come alongside of us, but He actually uh, comes into our life in some ma manner, measure, and He has access to the deepest parts of our soul and heart and spirit. In uh, Romans, Paul says that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. 
He communicates with us at the deepest spiritual level of our being. Okay? He comes into us. Interestingly, the, the actual passage here, uh, the, the literal translation of this really is to be filled by the Spirit. Uh, it's uh, literally uh, filled in the Spirit, and the, the word in there can be, it's a, it's, a, it's a dative, a means, it shows the means of something. Uh, now, most translations and, and most people translate it with, and uh, it's, a bit, it's a, bit misle- a bit misleading, and it really doesn't give us the full scope of what Paul means here. Oftentimes we get the idea that to be filled with the Spirit simply means that the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in us, right? Like, you know, he needs a place to watch TV, and so he's done it in us, right? Well, that, that really uh, doesn't describe all that's intended here. It's not just that the Holy Spirit shows up and is physically, or in this case, spiritually present in us. It's really much more than that. It's that we are filled by means of the Holy Spirit. And in in Ephesians, the filling has very specific and direct meaning. Uh, We need to look at the context of how Paul uses this word in the book of Ephesians. First, in chapter 1, verse 23, he says... um, Let's start reading in verse 22, chapter 1. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full, same exact word used, full and complete by Christ himself, who fills all things everywhere with himself. Okay, so Paul says that the filling, uh, as he uses the word, one of the ways he uses this is that Christ fills all things with himself. All right? Then if we jump over uh, to chapter 4, verse 10, it says, in, and, um, it says he ascended, and clearly this means that Christ also descended to our, lonely world, our lowly world. And the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens, so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. All right? So there again, this picture of Jesus filling it, with himself. And the context here is one, as in chapter 1, of Christ's headship and rule of his right to govern and have authority over things. So in this, in this context, it's of him being seated with power and authority and having authority over all of created order, filling it with himself, the right to govern and rule it. Third reference, and I, I'm doing this out of order, but I want to go back because I want to park here for a minute. Chapter 3, verse 19 uh, again, we'll start at verse 18, get the background. And, and may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how deep, and how high um, is, God's, is His love. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to fully understand. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Literally, it says, to be filled with the fullness of God. Okay, uh, he says. You, his prayer for the Ephesians is that they would so understand God's love and experience it and encounter it, that by that experience they would be filled with the very fullness of God, that their life would be filled up with everything God is, His character, His nature, His heart, His His thinking, His worldview, uh, His will, His purpose, so that we would be filled with the fullness of God. And then he comes to chapter 5 and he says, I pray that you would be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. We've already explained what filling is. Uh, It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit just takes up space in our body. What it means is that the Holy Spirit does a work in our life of producing in us Christ's rule and authority in our life so that Christ could fill us, fill his church, fill the universe with himself. And that we would come to encounter and experience Christ to such a capacity that we would be filled with the fullness of God. All right. So the filling is not just taking up space. The filling produces God-likeness in us. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to shape and transform and mold our life into the very likeness and image of God. All right. And it fits well with what Jesus did, right? Jesus didn't die on the cross just to clean you up but keep you fully human and in no way resembling the character or being or nature of God. No. He redeemed us to restore us to the original created order of one who was created in the image and likeness of God. 
and by the working of the Holy Spirit in our life, by the influence of the Holy Spirit in our thinking, in our attitudes, in our heart, in our action behavior, we become daily more and more godlike. Okay, now we don't ever become God, right? There's only one God, but we are to be image bearers. We are to be people who reflect his heart and his character and his nature, right? And that's produced by the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit, or being filled by the Holy Spirit, what we're really talking about is the, uh, not the presence, I mean, it is the presence of the Holy Spirit, praise God for that. But it's a presence that's actively influencing us, influencing us to a chain, radically changed life, right? Uh, the whole point of it is that, and what Paul's describing through all of chapters 4, 5, and 6, is a radically different kind of life, where we're no longer living like the world does, unwise, clueless, but we're living you know, drunk, but we're living as those transformed into God's character, nature, and likeness. Um, he uses an interesting form of the word here. He says, you know, be, be filled, be filled. And for those of you who like Greek, uh, it's a present passive imperative. For the rest of you who think this is just dumb, you can just tune out for a moment. It's actually quite interesting because um, the present tells us that it's a continual action. Okay, so the filling by the Holy Spirit is not a one-time event. Okay, if you had an encounter and experience where the Holy Spirit came upon you in a powerful way at some point in your past, and uh, maybe you experienced something very profound and powerful, you know, be very thankful to God for that. But that's not the end of it. Okay, that may have been the beginning, but it's not the end. Okay. It is to be a daily continual filling. In other words, we don't, we don't experience the influence of the Holy Spirit on one day and then are oblivious to it for the rest of our life, right? We are to be continually being influenced, prodded, nudged, directed, molded and shaped by the Holy Spirit. It's supposed to be continual. Continually ongoing process of the Holy Spirit doing this work in our life. Uh, secondly, it's a passive uh, and it's an imperative. Well, passive means that it's something done to us. If it's an active, it means I do it. I punched you, right, Michael? But if I got punched by Michael, it's passive. I was punched. This is passive. Okay? Be filled. Don't, don't fill yourself, but be filled. All right? So it's not, in, in that part of the word, it's not something we do. We don't fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit. God's not a gumball machine that we go out and we put a quarter in and we open our head and we pour the water in ourselves. Okay, the filling of the Holy Spirit is a work of God. Okay, there's really there's actually nothing you can do to make God influence you. All right? It's passive. God influences and we receive that influencing effect on us. We receive his influencing power in our life. We don't make it happen. Okay, so that makes sense. So present, passive. Now the third one's the one that is kind of confusing because it's an imperative. An imperative is always means a command. Okay? So what this means is we're commanded to receive something. It's kind of like, and to put it in perspective, it's kind of like this. If I were to tell well, Johnny, you know, he's going on this way out the door to school, and you say, okay, Johnny, today I want you to be nice to everybody. Okay, because maybe Johnny's not always nice. So today, Johnny, I want you to be very careful to be nice. Okay, it's a command. Be nice to everybody. Okay, this is something you can control, and I want you to work at being nice. Okay, that's an active. But what, what Paul's saying here would, would have this force. Johnny, I want you to go out today, and I want everybody at school to be nice to you. Johnny's thinking, huh? <laughs> what if they don't like me? Right? Okay, that's a passive imperative. Okay, it's kind of confusing. Paul is saying, I want you to go out there and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, something you seemingly have no control over. Well, it's a confusing, it is a bit confusing, but it's intentional, and it's a great picture of the operation of the Holy Spirit in our life. We don't control the Holy Spirit. We don't order the Holy Spirit what to do. Right? Uh, we can't pray, God, fill me with your Spirit. Oh, you can pray that, but God's going to go, yeah telling me what to do. <laughs> you know? uh, we don't tell God what to do, by the way. Okay, uh, That would be actively filling ourselves. It doesn't work that way. It's a passive thing. 
but it's a command. How do you do that? Well, uh, the, the good news is because it's commanded, we can be confident that, confident that it is an action or activity that God is anxious to do. God wants to fill you and influence you with His Holy Spirit far more than you want to be influenced. At least in our flesh. Our flesh isn't necessarily real keen on this whole thing. Kind of like some of the other things we're going to talk about later, like submission. You know, We're not exactly jumping at the bit to do this. Uh, we're not always eager for this. But God is. And the Holy Spirit is longing and desiring, waiting to exercise influence in our life. To come in and do the work of God molding us and filling us with the fullness of God. Okay, we don't need to ask God to do this. He is eager to do it. It is His promise. It is an absolute promise that is a result of, of Christ's death on the cross and His promise. All right? uh, you may or may not have had some kind of experience or encounter in an in a outward way with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter. He is chomping at the bit, waiting to work in your life. And He is working... If we will allow Him. The way God operates and the way God works is that He wants to do it, but He will never take initiative apart from our permission. Okay? We must allow God access into our life. Okay? That's, that's the command part. Okay? The command is not that we demand what God does. The, the command part is that we open the door, give freedom and permission for God to do what He's longing to do in our life. So there's a sense in which being filled with the Holy Spirit is a lot about doing nothing. Right? Uh, now it is about doing something because as the Holy Spirit comes in and influences us, He influences us to action. He leads us to do things. But what's important is that the actual filling itself is much more passive than it is active. It is much more yielding your life before God and saying, God, I don't... I, 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 I give you permission and freedom to have access and control, influence in my life. I long, I ask, I seek that you do this work in my life. And I yield and surrender up my will and my thoughts and my actions, my attitudes to the shaping influence of the Holy Spirit. So in, in many senses, it's not a doing, but it's a giving up. It's not a striving, but it's a letting go and giving God space to come in and, and work in our life. Now, it's important to see that, and, and, and as Paul describes the results of this, the filling of the Spirit is, I believe, most often not accompanied by anything that we see tangibly or may experience or encounter. Now, sometimes we do, and if you've had those kind of experiences, praise God for those. But the filling of the Spirit, unlike being drunk, okay, when people get under the influence of alcohol, you know it, right? If nothing else, you can just smell it on their breath, if not in their behavior. Uh, the filling of the Holy Spirit is oftentimes much more subtle. Now, over the long haul, as we will see, there are results that are visible. There will be things that will be evident in your life. But it may not be something that you, you know, there's like fireworks and some dramatic experience. Okay? Oftentimes, the Holy Spirit comes and He bears witness with our spirit at the deepest levels of our heart and soul. He shapes and changes our desires and our longings to conform them to His own. Okay, so that's what He says, being filled. It's this joint venture where we, you know, and this is how God works in us always, in cooperation with Him. Okay, in cooperation with the Spirit, we see our lives being transformed and molded into the likeness of, of Christ. And He says that there's evident, there is evidence of this filling. Okay, there are some very key things and of course, another uh, passage that he talks about the, the gifts of, of the Spirit, the spiritual fruit. Okay, there's all kinds of these. This, he picks out five things that are marks or evidences of the Spirit. And they are um, spe- speaking psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, uh, singing, making music in your heart, giving thanks, and being submissive. Those in authority over you. Okay, those are the five marks or results. So I want to look uh, this morning through this passage at those five things, five marks. And uh, when we evaluate or gauge if we're being filled or not filled by the Holy Spirit, uh, this would be a good way to gauge it. Are these things true in my life? Are these things growing in my life? 
right? First one uh, I title singing, spirit prompted singing. He says, uh, you know, as the Holy Spirit fills you, you will be speaking psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You will be um, singing. You'll be making music in your heart to the Lord. Music. Uh, I love this picture. He, he talks about every kind. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I'm not going to go into the breakdown of what these are. Let's just say it covers everything. You know, Every kind of worship hymn, song, psalm, scripture music, praise music, old hymns, new hymns. You know, it doesn't matter. Um, and uh, some of you may think, well, you know, this is kind of a drag for me because I have no musical ability. So I must not be filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> well, the good news is the very first expression here is actually speaking songs. Right? So the good news is you're off the hook. If you can't sing, it doesn't matter. You, know, you can speak the words. Right? Or even better yet, he says you can make music in your heart. Okay, that doesn't hurt anybody's ears. If you're making music in your heart, you know, it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to even be audible. Okay? All kinds of music, all kinds of expressions of it. Um, whether it's old, contemporary, new, modern, new songs, new music. The point is that when the Spirit comes into our life and begins to operate in us, there will be in us music. Music of our heart and soul. Music that wells from deep within us. I, like, I love that expression. Uh, making music with your heart. Literally strumming the chords of your heart is really how it could be translated. Making music from the depths of your being. Uh, I, I call it soul music, and, and this is why. I really believe that when God does a work in our heart and our life and our soul, He stirs something deep within us that connects well with music. And when I say music, you have to kind of distinguish, you know, in our day, in fact, I was reminded of this last night at our house, one of my traditions on Saturday night is I go out and I just pray and walk and think through the sermon and just try to hear God. It was very difficult last night because there were like a dozen parties going on on every corner of the compass, and they all converge in our Mubon in just this chorus of chaos and noise, right? And I thought, well, this is kind of interesting because the world loves music. Does that mean it's spiritual? Well, I don't think so. And I, I, think, there, I, think, I think a lot of modern music that's very sense-oriented, it's all about the rhythm and the melodies and the harmonies, it's about the music itself, really misses the point of what true music is. It's all outward. It's all show. It's all stuff that shakes your bones, right? Especially if you're in a Thai, you know, venue. I mean, they love to crank it up, right? And there's something fun about that, right? There's, well, for some people, <laughs> I guess it depends on the music. I mean, I like good, loud music that just shakes my bones, right? I like it. And there's something that uh, appeals to my flesh in that. That's not what, that's not what Paul is describing here. It's interesting, uh, two of the three words that he uses here for music could be translated poetry. Poetry. You know, there, there is music loud and blaring, full of rhythm and energy that, that, that you know, kind of cranks us up, winds us up. But there is something else that is, that is poetry, that is poetic, that stirs the strings of our heart and our soul. Right? Really good music doesn't just make us want to dance outwardly. It stirs something in deep within our heart and our soul. Uh, God, when His Spirit works in our life, He puts, really He puts, I, I would say, I would put it this way, He puts poetry in our heart. Right? I remember when I first got saved, people talking about how they just love the Psalms. And I read the Psalms and I thought, I, could, I might as well have been reading them upside down. Because they just made no sense to me. I mean, these guys, I thought, what? These guys are confused. Why don't they just say what they mean? You know. Well, over time, God has, through the outwork of His Spirit in my life, He's developed my soul a bit, and He has started to make me appreciate poetry and the poetic. That there is something about uh, stirring the beauty and majesty and wonder and mystery of romance of God's wonder. They can only be des described or only be experienced in poetry. Whether it's set to music or not, it's that that Paul is talking about. Uh, you know, I love that, that this, this whole discussion in 
moves towards submission and moves to, to the relationship of men and women in marriage. And he talks about the context of Jesus as the groom and the church as his bride. You know, this is all a grand romance. And there's something romantic and poetic about the picture that's described here. When we when we're filled with the Holy Spirit and we're transformed, we are moved into that romance. We are moved into that romance of this love relationship between God and, and His bride, between Jesus and His bride. And, uh, you know, if you don't read a lot of romance, and I'm not talking cheesy romance, but there's good romance out there, you know. And, and it, the, 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 the story of the Gospel is a romance. And we are in this divine romance and God is putting this song in our soul. And the idea is that as we, you know, going back to uh, chapter 3, verse 16, this prayer, you know, that you may know the love of God, that you may experience the love of Christ too great to fully understand, then you'll be made full with the, filled with the fullness of Christ. The Holy, and, and he starts out that prayer by saying this, that you would be strengthened in your inner man by the working of the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit does for us is He launches us into a greater, deeper experience of God's love in our life. And when you have, you know, we, we know that, right? Bethany, when you fall in love, do you sing? There's songs in your heart, right? Uh, when, when we fall in love, there's music. Okay, it should be that way with Jesus, right? It's a result of the filling of the Holy Spirit. There's music. We burst forth in song. That doesn't necessarily mean that we are good musicians. It may not even mean that we ever sing out loud, you know. But there will be songs in our heart, right? Uh, you know, kids are I, kids are great at this. Well, Emma, a couple of weeks ago, it was Christmas time, and she was in the spirit of Christmas, and she'd gone to bed one night, and was supposed to be sleeping, and we're all downstairs, quiet reading, and at the top of her, I mean, at the top of her lungs, she starts belting out Christmas carols for like. I don't know, 45 minutes, just at the top of her lungs, singing away, filled with joy, right? That's, that is a result of the Holy Spirit in our life. When we are so filled with joy that we cannot help but singing, right? That we, we connect with the music of the soul. He goes on and he says, so those three of them, and it's interesting, out of the five things, three of them have to do with singing, so it's important, it's significant, okay? It should be no small thing. Uh, it is significant that we, we make music part of our worship on Sunday morning. Our, our Tai Mei Ban asked, she goes, she's not a believer, but she goes to Ann Lawton's Bible study and is interested in the Word. And she said, do Christians always have to sing? Because they always sing, you know. And, uh, you know, the Buddhist mindset is you have to go through the motions, right? You have to go through the steps, and so she thought, you know, like they offer incense, we sing songs. There's some magical power. No, we don't have to sing, but we can't help but singing. Right? If we love Jesus, we can't help but singing. Music. Uh, the fourth thing that he talks about, he says, Thanksgiving. He says, um, don't, uh, giving, give th giving thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, thankful hearts. Uh, sadly, the New Living, I don't know why, they kind of leave out an important phrase. It literally says, giving thanks at all times for everything. Okay, thankfulness at all times for everything. Okay, it doesn't mean just being thankful in good times. It means always being thankful in everything at all times, regardless of circumstances, situations. Because, see, you know, if you win the lottery, you don't need the Holy Spirit to help you be thankful. Okay, uh, if you get some great inheritance, you know, and all of a sudden your, your your checkbook is enhanced, you don't necessarily need the Holy Spirit to help you be thankful for that, right? If you got what you wanted for Christmas and Santa Claus was good to you, you know, you don't need the Holy Spirit. Uh, Holy Spirit motivated or Holy Spirit prompted Thanksgiving uh, is 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 a produced in our life at times when when normal people wouldn't be thankful. At all times, always in all things. Okay, well, how do you do that? What's well, interesting, he says here that we used to be thankful always, all times, in all things. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. It's, it's the only time in the New Testament that those concepts are put together, that being thankful in the name of Christ. And it's kind of an interesting uh, 
way to phrase it, but I think it's significant. Uh, in, in Scripture, when it says to do something in the name of somebody, it has the idea of doing it uh, in light of their life, work, and what they stand for. Okay? If you do something in someone's name, you are representing what that person stands for and what they have done in their life. Right? Well, think about that in terms of thanksgiving. What does Jesus stand for and what has he done with his life? Well, he has died for us. Uh, he laid down his life on the cross for us, purchasing us from sin and death. Uh, so the kind of picture goes like this. Regardless of the circumstances in your life, uh, you may be sick, you may have financial difficulties, you may have relationship problems, you may have great uncertainty about your future, or maybe about your present. Um, you may not, humanly speaking, have a lot to be thankful for, but you always have something to be thankful for in Christ. Because Christ's work on the cross is never diminished by your circumstances. And what that means is God's love for you is never altered or changed by your circumstances. And that's important for us to keep that perspective. Being thankful in Jesus' name means this, that God gave His greatest gift of love when He sent Jesus to the cross for you. For God so loved the world. For He so loved you, He sent His Son for you. God has demonstrated and shown that His love towards you is unlimited and unending and unstoppable. Okay? Regardless of how you see the situation of your life in the current, God's love towards you is not changed. Jesus' death stands over you for all time and eternity. And there's always something to be thankful for in Christ. What did Jesus' life stand for? Well, his life stood for fulfilling God's will and purpose for all time and all history. Whatever your circumstances are, God is working those details out to fulfill his purpose and plan in your life. And so you can be thankful. That's why James said, I counted all joy in all circumstances because I know God's purpose in my life is being accomplished. Right? Uh, is that natural and normal? No, absolutely not. That is a work of the Holy Spirit. When you can come to the place of understanding that in your life, that God's working in you, and regardless of the circumstances, He's in control, and, the, and the, the work of Christ covers everything. And Jesus rose again, and He's seated in the place of authority on high, as He said in chapters 1 and 3 of Ephesians. God is ruling. He's got everything under control. He has authority over every evil power. You can be thankful. God, my life is in your hands. If the Holy Spirit is working in you, working, if you are allowing His influence to invade your life, you're in a good place. okay? And good things are going to happen in your life. And you can be thankful for that. I think it means also that we can be thankful that whether we feel like it or not, if we are yielding and surrendering our life to the influence of the Holy Spirit, He is working in you. He is radically changing you. Now, radically doesn't mean instantly, right? I know in my own life, I keep going, God, you could just speed this thing up a whole lot, okay? And he's going, I'm trying. You just won't let me, right? It's this kind of tug of war thing we have going. And he says, if you just let go, I'll do it. And I'm going, I'm trying. He goes, no, you're not. Your hands, you look at the, your knuckles are white hanging on, right? Let go. So I let go with one hand. See, God, I let go. Yeah, the other hand. No. Right? It's, this, it's this battle. But as Holy Spirit works and prompts and leads and moves, we have a lot to be thankful for that He does not give up on us. And He is producing the fullness of God in our life, oftentimes through the most difficult and painful of circumstances. Um, and He says we're thankful to the, to the Father. Uh, again, just acknowledging God as the sovereign one who's in control, who's in charge over all things, who is working out his purpose and plan in our life. Finally, last thing, uh, we are, and this just seems so out of this. We've got singing, making music in our hearts, speaking songs, being thankful. We like this. This is all very joyful, happy stuff, right? And then being submissive. Where does this come from? Okay, Very much in parallel with these other five words. Being submissive. Being submissive. And not only that, but he says, being submissive in the fear of Christ. If the, if the filling of the Holy Spirit isn't doing for you, we're going we're to do this with fear of Christ. Wow, where does this come from? This seems, this seems so out of context, right? 
What does Paul mean? Well, I call it fear-inspired. We have spirit-prompted singing, Jesus-centered thanksgiving, fear-inspired submission. Sounds kind of intimidating, huh? Um, What does he mean? Well, it's interesting. I think in our day, people have a very hard time with this. And society in general, and sadly, I think even within the church, we do not like this whole concept of submission. And uh, I'm not, sadly, I'm not going to get to it this week. Uh, next week, uh, Mike is going to share uh, the role of husbands loving their wives. And then we'll come back and we will apply this principle of submission more specifically uh, with wives and children and employees and see how this works in our modern day world. But it's not popular. And it's so not popular that a, a lot of modern theologians have really been very confusing and muddling on this. All right, So let me, real, real briefly, just give you... It's simple. Okay, This is simple Greek. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. Let me state clearly what the Bible says, and then we will look at how it's applied uh, in a couple weeks. First of all, we need to understand that our own culture and society, namely democracy has really diluted and confused us on this issue. Now, in Paul's day, it wasn't confusing. When Paul said, slaves, submit to your masters, there was no confusion on this. Because in their day, slaves were slaves, and they did what their masters told them. If your master tells you to run into a brick wall, you just run into the brick wall, right? You don't argue. If he tells you work 15 hours a day, you work 15 hours a day. You don't argue. It's submission, right? They weren't confused on this. They knew what it meant. Uh, in, a, in a world where there are masters and slave owners and emperors who kill you for disobedience, submission was pretty standard and straightforward and simple, right? When the Ephesians read this, be submitted to one another, they knew it meant there's authorities in your life and you submit to them. You do what they tell you. You let them rule and govern your life. Well, we, we just can't hear that because we're, we're democratic. And what democratic means is this. Um, Democracy, and, and, and let me say this. I believe there are some good things in democracy that are biblical. For example, Bible teaches that we are all created equally in God's image. We are all image bearers, and we are equal as image bearers. Right? That's biblical. By the way, it doesn't mean we're all equal. Okay, we're not all equally smart. Okay, Some of you are way smarter than me. Some not. You know, It doesn't mean we're all equally good-looking. Okay, thankfully, all the ladies are much more good-looking than any of the guys. I can tell you that right now. Okay, we're not equal. We're created equal in God's image as image bearers. We're not equal, right? But democracy has said, well, we are all equal. We are all equal. Okay, did you know that? We're all equal. Equally wealthy, equally good-looking, and equally uh, smart, right? Equally able. Um, Democracy is very strong on human rights, that because we are all, all created equal... We all have equal rights, and that's a good thing. We, we, we advocate human rights. Uh, those are good aspects of, of democracy. Um, <clears throat> the bad thing, though, is that you've got to understand, and don't, please don't throw things at me, okay? <laughs> democracy is not biblical in itself, okay? God did not invent democracy. Now, for some of that's just heresy, okay? They're so convinced that you know, their country slash Christianity are synonymous and therefore God invented democracy. Well, he didn't. Okay? And when God rules, it's not going to be a democracy. When you get to heaven, there's not going to be an election. Okay? God's not going to be up for vote. Okay? Who votes for God this year? Okay? It's not going to work that way. Okay? There's nothing de- democratic about God's kingdom. God appoints rulers. They're not elected. Okay? He's king. He appoints them. There's nothing democratic about democracy. All right? Uh, I mean, there's nothing biblical about democracy. <laughs> Actually, there's probably nothing democratic about it either, the way it's going nowadays. Uh, and the, the damaging effect of this, and it's pervasive in, in Western cultures, is that, is that my voice is equal to all others, and therefore, no one has a right to tell me what to do. Right? And this is a grow. Well, it's been a, a trend of democracy that's just growing and becoming more deeply embedded in culture. That equal means hierarchies are evil and of the devil. And since democracy is obviously biblical, 
Anything that smacks of hierarchy or authority is therefore evil and wrong. And there's tons of... You, you read uh, commentaries, you read theologians on this stuff. And uh, a lot of them will say this. And they'll say that you know, it's, it's wrong if somebody claims authority over another human being. Because we're equal. We have equal voice, we have equal say. Uh, this is growing in the emerging, the emerging generations and emerging cultures. This is especially true. Institutions are seen as evil, wicked, the cause of all of human uh, problems and ills. Right? Leaders are evil, wicked. Anybody who claims authority is an evil person. They're a tyrant and a dictator who has no right or control over my life. Okay, I have absolute say over my life, and nobody can tell me what to do or how to live. Right? Well, uh, that comes into difficult problems when you talk about people yielding their life to God. Are we going to let God be God? Well, how far do we take this equality? Well, sadly, it extends to where we become God. Right? And nobody tells us, not even God, how to live or what to do. We do not bow ourselves to these morals these standards of right and wrong, okay? I just read a survey. Uh, 18 to 24-year-olds who, who, who are defined as evangelical Christians, meaning they go to a Bible-teaching conservative church and they attend more than once a month. Okay, out of that group of 18 to 24-year-olds, 52% were actively engaged in premarital sexual activity regularly, like once a month or more, Okay? The, the people in the church have ditched morality. Why? Well, because nobody's going to tell me what to do. God, my parents, no one. I'll do what I want, right? That's democracy at its, at its best. I mean, that's where democracy has taken us. And it's per, permeated society to the point that it has crept into the church. And, uh, you know, this, we, we have taken on democratic models of leadership and structure that really confuses about this whole submission thing. You know, in business, in the, in, in the business world, everything's led now by teams, right? You don't have leaders, you have team leadership, right? Now, I'm not saying that's all bad, okay? And I'm not saying that there are not good balances, and, and we'll talk as we apply this, how it can look in our modern world. Uh, churches, you know, if a pastor claims any kind of authority over his congregation, he's, he's, it's called a cult, right? Right? It's cultic, Right? Uh, in fact, churches aren't even led anymore by pastors. We have either congregational rule or elder teams, right? And I'm not saying that's not good. Again, I'm not saying that there are some healthy parts of that. But just see how this mindset has invaded the church. So when we come to marriage relationships, and we don't have wives don't submit to their husbands anymore. Marriages are a partnership, right? It's a partnership. We are equal partners. We both get a vote, right? And uh, we'll talk about that in a couple weeks. How that works. Um, so the result is that uh, too many Christians come to this passage and they cannot read it seriously. Scholars and theologians cannot read it seriously. And so here's what they do. It says literally, uh, submit to one another. Submit to one another. And so what a lot of people have done with this passage is they've really kind of skipped over the word submission and jumped on the word one another. And they said what it's saying here is Submission is to be mutual. We should be mutually submissive, which, which means this. It means I'm supposed to be nice to you and you're supposed to be nice to me. Okay, that's what mutual submission is. We just be nice to each other. Yeah, I don't tell you what to do. You don't tell me what to do. I don't take any grief from you. You don't take any grief from me. We'll be mutually submissive. We'll just be nice to each other. And we'll all be happy. Okay? Okay, the, Greek, the, the people reading this would not have understood it that way. Okay? They would not have read this and go, oh, we're supposed to be nice to each other. Now, Paul already said you should be nice to each other. He said you should put up with each other's faults. Okay, he used different words. Well, what does this mean? What is the biblical, basic biblical meaning of this word? Well, literally it means to order yourself under something. It's a word by definition that requires hierarchy. Okay, it's a word that would be absurd to be used uh, to be ni eat mutually nice to each other. It would be an absurd use of the word. It means hierarchy. It means somebody's over and somebody's under. Okay, to order yourself under something. Literally what it means. Um, you know, it's kind of like, if you say mutually submissive, it means we're just kind of like mutually under each other. It's kind of like saying we're, you know, I'm mutually short. Let's all just be mutually short. You know, we're all created equal. 
So we'll all be mutually short. Well, it's stupid. Okay, it's just absurd. Uh, schools are doing this. You know, that we'll be mutually smart. We can't have dumb kids because we're all equal. We're all the same smartness. So we'll, have, we'll be mutually smart and we won't fail kids or we won't give some kids lower marks and some kids higher marks. We'll be mutually equal. So you, you just pass. You just pass everybody because everybody's mutually smart. Right? Well, it's absurd. There are differences. And there are hierarchies in the world. Um, it means to be under somebody and it, it, it really has the idea of submitting or subjecting yourself to their, the authority or governance or rule of a person within the boundaries of a certain relationship. All right? The word would have been used in the military of soldiers, submitting to their uh, commanding officer. Uh, it would have been used, as Paul uses it, of husbands uh, to wives, of a slave to their master, of a student submitting to their teacher's instruction and guidance. Okay? Each of those within its boundaries of that relationship. Uh, submitting here, Paul's use of the word here, uh, certainly is in the context of, of social relationships, social roles. Um, and let me just say that, you know, life works this way. There are, in every social relationship, there are leaders and there are followers. And if I had time, I would do this. We don't have time, so I won't. But if I were to say right now, okay, I want you all to break up into groups of five or six people, and I want you to pray for Thailand. I gave you a couple of things to pray for, and you all huddled your chairs together. Uh, one of two things would happen. One, somebody, you know, you all kind of sit around and stare at each other for a few seconds, and one person would say, well, what, let's, let's pray. How can we pray, right? And everybody would look to that person, and they would follow their lead, right? Probably a firstborn. And they're always kind of obnoxious that way, <laughs> right? And they would kind of get things going, Right? Okay, that would be one scenario. The other scenario is everybody just kind of sits there and stares at each other, kind of blankly. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, nobody knows what to do, right? Because we need a leader. We need somebody who kind of puts himself out there and starts things going, right? Now, it's, it's, it's good that Mike's going to share next week on you know, the role of husbands because how we lead is very important, okay? is very significant. And in the context of godly homes and marriages, relationships, churches. Leaders are very important. But leaders are not leaders without followers. You know, it's interesting. We talk lots about servant leadership. We have books on leadership, stacks of books on leadership because we see it's important. Well, I'll tell you the truth. Leaders are nothing if they don't have followers. Okay? We need some books on good followership. I'll tell you something else that's very significant. Every good leader... If they're a godly, good leader, is an excellent follower. All right? You take a lieutenant colonel who's risen in rank through the, through the military and uh, is a good leader in the military. He knows how to follow orders from above. Right? He didn't get there by being insubordinate. Okay? He didn't get there by not following directions. He knows how to follow. That's why he's trusted to lead. All right? Every good leader will be a good follower will understand the principle of submission in their own life. Right? Um, Paul expected spirit-filled believers uh, to be good followers. And he said, in fact, this is a result of the operation of the Holy Spirit in, our, Spirit in your life. Throughout the book of Ephesians, one of the main focuses has been unity and oneness within the body of Christ. Okay, that oneness or unity requires leaders and followers. Okay, in every social relationship, there is some degree of leader and follower. All right? It's just the way God designed it. Uh, it is a God-ordained authority. And I'm not saying being submissive means you have to submit to everybody or everything. It certainly does not mean, for example, that women are sub sub to be submissive to all men. The Bible doesn't teach or say that. It's within certain specific relationships that we are in submission to other people. But a working of the Holy Spirit is that we recognize and identify God-ordained authority in our life. And we know how to let those people govern and rule us. How to have some measure of control over our life. Okay, that's God's intended and created design for His order within the body of Christ. Within the home, within government, structure, and organizations.
And that's how Paul uses the word here. Uh, now, it's important to understand, and we'll, we'll, as we talk about this more in specific relationships, we'll look at what this does mean in our kind of crazy world, which is different than theirs. And I think submission today will look differently. Uh, but let me say this right now, that submission is basically submitting your will and even your rights to the leadership and rule of another in the boundaries of that relationship. Okay, submitting your rule and even rights to the leadership and rule of another within the boundaries of that relationship. So this is the deal. You may not be a morning person. And for you, you would really, if it was according to your will, work hours would start at noon. Like that plan. <laughs> you know, and would quit at five. <laughs> right? uh, I mean, vote for that one. That is your will. But your boss says, no, we're going to actually start at eight and go till five. Well, we bend our will to theirs. And we give up our right to sleep in until 11.35. And we follow their orders. Now, if your boss says, and by the way, I don't want you watching cartoons on Saturday morning either. You'd say, go jump in a lake, right? Because that's outside of the boundary of that relationship. And you'd say, what I do on my Saturday morning is my business. You, know? uh, you have no authority over that area of my life, right? So it's within the boundaries of that relationship. A teacher has authority over a student. He says, you know, I want you to write a five-page paper on Shakespeare. Now, we all know, sorry, English teachers, we all know that nobody willingly wants to write a five-page paper on Shakespeare. Well, there's, there's that one. There's one. You know, there's always that one, right? <laughs> who, who writes the ten-page paper? No, one is the five-page paper, right? Because they just love this stuff. But most of us, that's not your will, but you bend your will and you do it, right? But the teacher says, uh, you know, over summer break, I want you to clean your room every day. <laughs> you have permission to laugh in their face because that's outside of the boundary of that relationship, right? Um, let me just say real briefly in closing. Everybody lives into submission to somebody. It is a part of life. Jesus modeled this. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's seated at the right hand of God. Everything is subject to his authority. When he came to earth, he submitted himself to the authorities that were over him. As a child, he submitted himself to his parents. Okay? As an adult, he submitted himself to government officials. Throughout his life, he says, always, he says, I submit myself to my Heavenly Father. We see this great picture in the Garden of Jesus unwilling in himself to go to the cross. It was not his will at that moment to go to the cross. He said, this is not what I want. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He was obedient to the will of the Father, obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is even more remarkable to me. Not only was he obedient to his own Father, but Jesus submitted himself fully to the the rulers and authorities over Israel and over Rome of that day. He allowed himself to be drugged before the high priest and the Sanhedrin. And he yielded. He submitted himself. He gave up his rights and submitted himself to their rule and authority. He went before Pilate and even went before the corrupt, wicked Herod. And he submitted himself to those authorities knowing that their injustice and corruption would mean his death. And he did not speak a word. He yielded himself to death. Okay, Jesus knows what it is to submit himself, even to the point of abuse. And I'm not saying, and we'll talk about this, I, I think there are times when we don't submit. I don't know that we are called to submit to abuse like Jesus was. I'm just saying, this is his example. Okay, Jesus did not model uh, democracy. He didn't say to the Sanhedrin, I think we should take a vote on this. I'm not real comfortable with this. You know, can I appeal this to the Supreme Court? He yielded himself. Right? He submitted himself. Um, it's all done in the spirit of fear, and we don't have time to go into the doctrine of fear, but just, just let me say this, that fear is an Old Testament concept that has a positive and a negative side. In the Chronicles of Narnia, Jesus says, you know, that Aslan is a lion, and he's not a tame lion. Okay, when you're dealing with a not tame lion, there is something fearful about that. Okay, God is not a tame God. 
And God has the potential to do infinite good and infinite harm in our life. And the Old Testament model was simply this. Um, And in fact, if you look at the use of the word fear in the Old Testament, it is often paralleled with the idea of belief or trust. It's believing that God is is a powerful force, a force that can be used for good, that that can turn out for good, or for destruction. If you're on his good side, if you trust him for protection and refuge, uh, if, you, if you obey him, you find incredible blessing and protection. But if you choose to disobey, if you will not yield and submit your life to him, uh, there is destruction. And so fear is not just fearing the destruction, but it's understanding the power of a God who's able to do both infinitely and trusting and believing that and respecting that power, right? Uh, God calls us to that. And here's the, here's the bottom line. We will, never be in, we will never be any more submitted to God than we are to human God-appointed authority over our life. Okay, that's the measure of our surrender to God. Uh, and that's why it's important. And, and as we go on later in marriage, he, Paul says this is a picture of the church's submission to Jesus. Okay, the degree to which you submit and yield to God-appointed authority over your life is the measure to which you are submitted to God himself. If you will not submit to human authority, you do not submit to God. And that's why the fear thing is important. Because in the Old Testament concept, to yield, to obey God, was to come under his blessing. But to reject that was to fall under harm. And God's saying, you want joy, you want blessing, you want to live this life of thanksgiving. You will learn what it means to submit, to follow, to let others, to let God govern and rule you through human authority. Let's pray.